Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. There's this trend to move away from using the term slave and start using this term enslaved peoples. They say slave is dehumanizing, whereas enslaved peoples means that they're a human being. And another reason is that when you say slave, it's a noun versus when you say enslaved peoples, enslaved is the adjective, people's the noun. So we want to reemphasize that they're people. My issue with this is when I say slave, we all know we're talking about a human being. If I was, yeah, oh yeah. And then there were some slaves brought over. You wouldn't be like, what, what kind of slaves are these? Are these camel slaves? Are these donkey slaves? Are these horse slaves? Are these human slaves? Oh, human slaves. Yeah. Everyone knows that slaves means a human being. And the second thing is, just because you refer to someone as a noun, that doesn't mean that you're dehumanizing the person. I mean, if I say, what's he, oh, that's a carpenter. Like, am I supposed to call him a woodworking person to emphasize that carpenter is not who he is, it's just what he does. We, we recognize in English, we have the category of a noun that refers to what you do rather than who you are. Nouns can be roles rather than some essential aspect of your personality. This is just people messing around with language to try to separate people into in and out groups based on who knows what the latest up-to-date language is. It's like fashion. And maybe it's this, this postmodern focus on discourse that really emphasizes language above action. But I see this, this real trend toward we care more about how we talk about things than how we actually treat people. I think part of the trend with this language is everything gets more complicated. We're not simplifying any words for things. Everything is getting more adjectives and prepositional phrases. What it's formally called, taking the noun and then making it an adjective with a noun instead, it's called person-first language. And you're right. Like, I wouldn't call you a person who practices law. I would probably just use your job title. But your job title is different than referring to someone as a slave, right? Like, yes, it's something about you, but... It's not something I would think you'd have a problem with me sharing with anybody or something that would bother you to talk about. If I've never experienced slavery in any way, like I don't think it's in my family tree, like that didn't happen to people related to me. It's not really up to me how those people would like to be referred to. Like if that's what you, if you would prefer enslaved person over slave, it's not up to me to say, I don't like that. I'm going to call you what I want. I would, I would remove myself from making the rules for what is correct to say. I agree with Lauren. That's how I thought of it. There's a, a point for that to be made when it's some sort of a new phenomenon. If, you know, some new thing comes out, TikTok, someone that does TikToks, they want to be called TikTokers, not TikTok. Oh, I don't know. TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's, the, but Slave has been around and been in use for a long time, and it's now fifth, over 150 years after the formal abolition of slavery that we're, that this word shift is starting to use. Like actual slaves use the word. Like Frederick Douglass, when he's writing, he doesn't. I don't think he uses the phrase enslaved persons or enslaved people. I think he just uses the word slave because everyone knows what it means, and it's it's not going to change what happened to those people to change how we talk about them now. No, it's not. And you're right. I don't think that language is very common in the early writings about it. But did those people make themselves slaves? No. Like if it's if it's a condition that is put upon you, 
like, of course, they didn't have probably the ability to decide what they wanted to be called. I mean, and yeah, if that's if that's how you're identified in society at that time, that's the term you'd use. It's weird to me that we're using different rules for this because there's all kinds of descriptors or roles that people were forced into that they didn't choose. Like, are we going to start calling ensurfed persons, uh, impeasanted persons? I mean, no one chose to be a serf or a peasant. It's just what you were born into due to factors outside your control. I think people also argue to some extent it, it's all about how what you think of when you hear it. I mean, because another example in a shift in what we're calling people is from using the word prostitute to sex worker, because when you hear prostitute, you tend to not have a great connotation with it. And so the shift to using sex workers to, you know, reflect, okay, yeah, no, this is what they do, but they don't deserve any less for it. And to some extent, I don't know, maybe it's just, um, I guess, probably more casualness on my part, but I'm like, I guess if they want us to change what we're using, no, like, fine, whatever, I can do that. I wonder, like, who first started the the transition i'm looking it up right now because i'm curious too but i guess i mean language by definition is meant to evolve i mean the language we use now isn't the same as the language we used in the 16 or 1700s things have changed and shifted so i don't i wouldn't say i'm bothered by a language shift because it's it's natural it happens in so many other areas, and especially if it's being driven by people who have either direct or indirect experience with slavery, then I support calling people whatever is preferred. It's one thing for language to evolve. We're talking about concepts that are also evolving. But when we're mm-hmm. talking about a legal status that no longer exists, it makes less sense for me to me for language to evolve when we're talking about like something used to be and stopped existing, then it'd be weird for us to change our noun for it now, centuries later. I'm not sure how much of it is driven by people who have experience or indirect experience with it. I mean, like an example of this is that Latinx movement. It was either like 85 or 95% of Latino people. Like, yeah, we don't use that word. That I don't even understand what that word, like that's just not a word we use to describe ourselves. And it's being pushed more by the elite rather than the mass of the people actually involved in it. There's this sort of stereotype out there that a lot of the, you know, the wokeness stuff is white women in Ivy Leagues, not the actual people themselves. But I mean, and that's part of why I asked who first started this. Tell me if this kind of agrees with the point you were making. I think it does. So this compares it to like people who have been victims of rape or sexual assault. And it's a quick little mini quote, and I skimmed this really fast, but it says, I'm all for empowering people who've been abused, but I often wondered whether these semantics weren't more important to the counselors and advocates than to the women who'd been beaten. I've heard some of the latter say victim without seeming to think it was a dirty word. And indeed, why should that be shameful? Is that kind of in line with what you were trying to say? I, I I think that's an illustration of kind of the people care more about how you talk about a topic than your actual actions. Like Taylor Swift, who for a long time was donating money to, you know, women's shelters and all this, but she wasn't being politically active with her speech and people were getting on her. And then, I mean, she gets politically active with her speech later on, but it's like, one of these things is more important than the other. And it's not tweeting about causes, it's actual actions. Well, it's like, and what you were saying with like Frederick Douglass, 
you know, he didn't use the term enslaved peoples. And so it's like, well, he was probably more concerned with trying to get equal, like the actual equal rights than changing what the term terminology was. I put the term enslaved people into, into the Google Books Ngram viewer, and it looks like usage takes off in the mid-1980s. Like I said, I'm probably going to just bug you the whole podcast because I'm probably going to say enslaved people. So the 1619 Project, as mentioned last episode, was a special issue of the New York Times Magazine published on August 18th, 2019. The cover of the magazine is a picture of an ocean horizon. And I'm just gonna read the whole thing because it's fairly short. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. America was not yet America, but this was the moment it began. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Well, like all of history, in order to understand something, you have to go back a little bit further. It is there in ancient Greece where our story begins. So slavery in various forms has been a feature of almost every civilization throughout history, even the ones that we consider sort of the most advanced. So even Aristotle, I mean, a pretty well-respected philosopher, very well-known, looked up to for millennia, talks about slavery. So he defends slavery, and it's really the first writing we have on slavery. So the question is, is he writing about it just because he wants to write about it, or is he writing to defend slavery in reaction to some sort of movement that is pushing against it? We don't know. None of those writings survive. But to Aristotle, slavery is just a fact of nature. Some people are natural slaves. Um, He compares them to women, but basically that don't have the ability to take care of themselves and function and that kind of thing. We don't have time to look at slavery in all societies. Our focus should be on England and Iberia as that has the most direct impact on the colonial law and colonial culture. So in England, uh, the Anglo-Saxons had prohibitions against selling countrymen abroad. And this were codified by William the Conqueror after the Norman invasion in 1066. A little bit after that, a church council convened by Anselm, who's a pretty famous philosopher, issued a non-binding decree, quote, let no one dare hereafter engage in the infamous business prevalent in England of selling men like animals. There's an evolution in the Middle Ages from slavery to serfdom, which is more of an indirect form of slavery, which where the people are tied to the land and you buy and sell the land, which then comes with the serfs rather than actually buying and selling the people themselves. And serfdom slowly begins to die out in Western Europe, especially after the Black Death gives workers more bargaining power. Before you had not a lot of land and lots of people, so workers didn't have much bargaining power. After, afterward, you had a lot less people, so the workers that were there had way more bargaining power, and they could negotiate more freedoms and things from the Lord. Uh, in England, there were some revolts that hastened serfdom demise there faster than the continent. And it was finally abolished by Elizabeth I, although this was more of a formality since there weren't that many remaining anyway. Part of the shift from serfdom to a more free status with the establishment of these payments called quit rents. And what you do is under serfdom, you had compulsory labor and military service obligations. So you had to farm the land. And if your Lord called you up, you had to fight. As money became more of a common thing, uh, Lords would say, look, just pay me, you know, X amount of money every year and quit rent. And that waives your labor and military service obligations. 
To simplify all this, English common law did not recognize slavery. So unlike contracts, uh, family relations, some things were, were recognized by the common law and you didn't have to have a statute about every single thing. But the English common law did not recognize slavery. So the only way to have slavery, the only way to be a slave was either to be put in slavery as a punishment by a court. The court sentences you to slavery for X crime or by statute. You know, the, the state passes a statute that says everyone who is X or Y has to work, you know, for the rest of their lives, be held in labor, which never occurred in England. There was never a statute passed in England, but these sort of statutes were passed in America. So English law did recognize indentured servitude, which is a contractual limited form of servitude under the common law because it's under contract. The name actually comes from the fact that you'd write your contracts on this big sheet of paper that had a crease in the middle called an indenture and they're written in duplicates. And this was a scenario in England at the time of colonization. Common law recognition of indentured servitude, but no slavery. And then on the other hand, in Iberia, and I, I refer to Iberia as a whole because Spain and Portugal had intertwined political histories, sometimes united, sometimes not. So in the Middle Ages, Europe was mainly defensive and less expansionist because of the Ottoman Empire on the border of Europe, uh, pretty constantly invading. Spain, on the other hand, not so much. Spain actually could expand and did expand in the Reconquista and into the south of Spain when they expelled the Moors. The, and also interestingly, the other uh, power that was expanding at this time was England, who was conquering and colonizing Ireland. So it's not surprising that the two most successful colonizers were the nations that were colonizing before the New World was discovered. Spain maintained an aristocracy of mounted horseback uh, lords who lived off the people. The frontier wars with the Muslims caused the Spanish ruling class to remain essentially horsemen. And this style of life had a pretty profound influence on Spanish colonization. So Spain conquered both Granada and the Canary Islands and converted the native people to slavery. And then the lords would live on estates amidst the native peoples who, and live off their labor while the people worked for them. And this is essentially a pre-existing scheme, a pre-existing framework that the Spanish would then impose on the new world. It was not invented for the new world. Um, there's some debate about the morality of this, mainly coming from the scholastics, Spanish Catholic thinkers like uh, Francisco Vitoria and Bartolomé de las Casas. Um, but in, 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 in fact, in one, they achieved a, a declaration from the Pope um, that you know, the native peoples were humans and that enslaving them was wrong. The state argued against Catholic teaching. So there was a real state and church division in Spain. Portugal, on the other hand, Vasco da Gama uh, went around Africa to India and they set up outposts along the African coasts and then began trading with the na native African kingdoms for slaves. Slave trading in Africa and elsewhere had been around for a very long time, and it's primarily picked up majorly by the Arabs, which start the trans-Saharan slave trade in the eighth or ninth century, which lasts much longer than the Atlantic slave trade, and it actually lasts to the 20th century. Arabs and Berbers also, also enslaved millions of Europeans by, by a kidnapping by the Barbary states, which would lead to the US's first war after independence. Also Turks enslaved Europeans from the Balkans and Caucasus, mainly Slavic peoples, which is where we derive the term slave. Slavery has now returned to Africa, thanks to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama's overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. And there are now open air slave markets again on the continent. 
So, the, but the Portuguese trading in slaves starts full scale around 1500. The uh, the American Indians, like all cultures, I mean, there's a there's a tendency to think of the American Indians as homogenous, which they were not. There were many different nations, as they called themselves, with many different cultures, and some of these practiced slavery. There's a mention in Christopher Columbus when he lands that the very first people he sees, they have marks and scars on them. He asks where these scars from, and they say it's from the island of the people next to us who come over and try to kidnap us to enslave us. So this is this is um, a status that exists in the New World before the Europeans arrive, but the Atlantic slave trade is the new development. The the cover page that that this is describing and what the 1619 project is talking about is that in August of 1619, a privateer captured around 20-some Africans from Portuguese traders and brought them to Virginia. The majority of historians claim or believe that with no slave laws in place, these slaves were initially treated as indentured servants and given the same opportunities for freedom once they worked off their bills as white indentured servants. There is some disagreement about this. There are a minority of scholars who say they were treated as slaves from the very beginning. There's ultimately not a lot of records about this, so we don't know for sure. But but if the majority of historians are right, and the Africans, when they were first brought to America, were treated as indentured servants, where did the later slave laws come from and why? This is a very interesting and important question. Uh, however, it's not one that the 1619 Project addresses, unfortunately. The reason why I searched some stuff up too is because I thought it would help to have some context for the history of slavery. So I'm glad it's included. I agree. Because I think sometimes what happens and this, the article touches on this a little bit. There's some instances where this comes up in that our discussion of slavery in this country sometimes puts up Great Britain as a model. So what happens is that we look at the fact that it was abolished there first or other things happened first, when really this has been a practice around for a very, very, very long time. So holding up a country that stopped the practice sooner as a model or as an ideal doesn't really hold up when you look at it over the course of world history. And the only other thing I found that I thought was interesting in when slavery was officially abolished in Great Britain was that not only was it abolished, but owners at that time were then compensated for loss of property, which I think sometimes when we hold up countries that abolished it before ours did, we look at it as that it was done for moral reasons. When really, if you look at owners still being compensated as if they lost assets, to me, that doesn't communicate that it was done for moral reasons elsewhere. Because if people aren't considered property, why are you going to pay someone for their losses? They weren't compensated in England proper. They were compensated in the British Empire that wasn't part of England. In England, there was a court case that freed all the slaves. But have you guys ever heard of the concept of Baptists and bootleggers? So it's basically this concept that political coalitions are made up of two types of people, Baptists and bootleggers. And the, the term comes from prohibition, people that supported prohibition. So there's the people that are in a political coalition because of some moral reasons. So the Baptists, they are against liquor. And then there are the people who are in, who are for a political coalition that benefit financially. They are the bootleggers. And so if you're looking at any kind of political coalition or political organization, you can split the people into the Baptists and the bootleggers. So I, I think there were definitely anti-slavery activists who had moral, moral reasons for wanting to oppose slavery. 
But I think there's also, and this tends to get left out, is all the economic, all the people who had economic incentives to end slavery. But there were some people who, there was a guy, was it Hinton Helper? I think it was Hinton Helper who talks about how slavery is bad because it depresses wages. And so we want to end slavery. So wages go up for the workers. So there, there is an economic component to everything. I thought the art they chose was interesting, which, I mean, we're really discussing the content, but I think to frame it with a grayscale of the ocean, I thought just kind of reminded everyone of the fact that a lot of people that were brought here to be part of slavery, like it was a transplant from their original culture. And they do talk later about how they um, commissioned the photograph of, yeah, about where, which I thought was interesting. Cause yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought that it was a specific location, but yeah, the ocean certainly invokes and encourages thought. So the title page closes with, on the 400th anniversary of this faithful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. And this is, I think, one of the issues with the 1619 Project is the 1619 Project is trying really hard to be like, this is a new story that's never been told before. And so they're, they're trying to reach for things that aren't sort of commonly known or commonly accepted to make it seem new. The idea that slavery isn't part of America's understanding of American history is an overstatement. It is a pretty big, important part of American history. There's a difference between like introducing something to someone to something new they've never seen before and taking a concept that someone's familiar with and really explaining to them to really grasp it and understand it in real detail. It's kind of like, you know, you know how slave owners could, you know, rape the women and beat the men and kill them without any punishment. And that's something you just kind of know on a surface level. And then you can like go to some of these museums and stuff and see the depictions of it. And then you understand it on a whole new, deeper level. And I think they would have been better served coming at it from that perspective rather than being like, this is something new you've never heard of before. We're going to blow your mind. It kind of just reminds me of like, like your hippie college professor that's like, oh man, the corporations, they've been lying to you. I'm going to open your eyes to this new knowledge. I agree. I think I would, I think it'd be hard to find someone to dispute the fact that slavery very much is unfortunately a part of our country's history. But, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about in our kickoff episode about the 1619 Project, is that again, when it's taught to people, when you learn about it, it's very much an oversimplification. In that, I think I've only noticed recently that the idea of slavery is even touched on in conjunction with the American Revolution and this time period, and that it was kind of still in existence before the Civil War. I think sometimes it sounds obvious and it makes sense if you think about it, but I think a lot of people mentally group it into, okay, here's the revolution, people in tri-corner hats, and then we get to the 1860s, oh, slavery. (laughs) But if you, it's sometimes you have to take a step back and realize that in order for change to happen, something has to have been in a country for a very long time. So I agree. I think taking a perspective of diving deeper into it and framing it as this is the story, we know it's the story, here's what you really need to know, would have served them well. It reminds me of the difference in Holocaust education 
That was literally the example I was thinking of. I was like, when you go to a Holocaust museum, they're not like, Uh, we're telling you the untold story of the Holocaust. They're like, you know, the Holocaust, here's, here's what it was. They also though, they don't pull any punches. It's, it's not so much like, oh, the Holocaust, bad. Now we're going to do better. It's like, here's literally what happened. Here's pictures of people who experienced this. Here's artifacts. Here's what was taken from these people. And it, throws it in your face in a way that you can't oversimplify it into Mm -hmm. something that doesn't require your attention. So I'd like to see that done in this country because I think still we always talk about slavery in the past tense or as like a period of 60 years and then it's like we pretend it's all gone or it only existed within this tiny time frame. I immediately thought of, I mean, we've all been to a Holocaust museum and and yeah, like you're there where it happened and you, you can't escape it. Next, we'll move to the intro on pages four and five, which is a, a brief introduction. It reiterates the, the 1619 arrival of the enslaved Africans enslaved by the Portuguese. And then it... It has this point here, and and this is the quote, the system of slavery. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it is more than that. It is the country's very origin. There were a lot of critics of the 1619 Project, but the organization that did the most in-depth critique of it was, interestingly enough, the World Socialist website, which is the publication of the International Committee of the Fourth International, founded by Leon Trotsky. And they did about six or seven interviews with various historians, ranging from socialist historians to very mainstream ones like Gordon Wood, about the 1619 Project. One of them, a historian named James Oakes, had this exchange with the interviewer. And the interviewer says, and the claim that is made, and I think it's almost become a commonplace, is that slavery is the uniquely American, quote, original sin, end quote. And uh, James Oates responds, yes, original sin, that's one of them. The other is that slavery or racism is built into the DNA of America. These are really dangerous tropes. They're not only ahistorical, they're actually anti-historical. The function of these tropes is to deny change over time. It goes back to those analogies. They say, look at how terribly black people were treated under slavery and look at the incarceration rate for black people today. It's the same thing. Nothing changes. There's been no industrialization. There has been no great migration." We're all in the same boat we were back then. And that's what original sin is. It's passed down. Every single generation is born with the same original sin. And the worst thing about it is that it leads to political paralysis. It's always been here. There's nothing we can do to get rid of it. If it's the DNA, there's nothing you can do. What can you do? Alter your DNA? One of the big issues that the World Socialist website has with the 1619 Project is its focus on race. And this Trotsky organization has the, the old Marxist view of doing everything through class struggle. So they think that this focus on race is a distraction from, from class. And that's, I think, one of the reasons they put so much effort into critiquing the 1619 Project. It is an interesting choice in language. And I guess when I read it, it didn't, I didn't focus so much on the use of the words original sin, but when you frame it that way, it makes sense. I guess I think probably what they were trying to communicate is, and maybe original sin was too literal of a term to use, but the fact that if you look at the origins of the country, I think what they're getting at is that you can't ignore it. 
And maybe, maybe that's the point that was being made, but yeah, if something's in the DNA of a country, what steps can we take to extract it? Original sin has such a religious connotation, but if they essentially meant like the first, like just literally the first sin that, as you know, as a part of our country, then that's very similar to the country's origin, I guess. So, yeah, original sin as meaning first sin, and maybe they didn't. Maybe this person that wrote that isn't as theologically familiar with the concept that original sin is passed down. Or maybe they meant it that way. And yeah. they truly, and that, that could be too. So maybe they knew exactly what they were doing and original sin, they see reflected generation to generation. The same issues are faced by groups that experience slavery today. Or not the same issues, but kind of a reiteration. There's a paragraph in this intro that really lays out the thesis of the 1619 Project as succinctly as it appears anywhere in the magazine. Out of slavery and the anti-Black racism that required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, diet and popular music, the inequities of the public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day. The seeds of all that were planted long before our official birthday in 1776, when the men known as our founders formally declare independence. That's the main claim. And I guess we'll see if they can back up their thesis. Thanks everyone for listening to Left, Right, and Unwanted. We'll be back again soon. Please tune in next time and thank you for listening.